Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to Trainwreck Thursday. What's going on? My name is Jim Rome. You are in the jungle. Why is it Trainwreck Thursday? Because Garrett Ritt is running the board and you never know what might happen. Game on. Finally. Finally. What's cracking? Welcome to the program. Nice to have you here. We are coming to you live from the Rocket Mortgage Studios. When you need certainty in the home buying process with a loan that fits your life, Rocket can. It is a train wreck Thursday, but it's going to be a good Thursday. Got a lot to get to. Lots of good content. And the reason we call it train wreck Thursday is because we are down a man. Alvin DeLauro is not here today. He normally runs the board. It's not an easy gig. The only thing better than train wreck Thursday is train wreck Friday. Which that's going to be too, because he's also not here tomorrow. Damn, Alvin, you got yourself alive, don't you, kid? <laughs> so, pace yourselves. Two days of the old man banging the buttons, doing what he does. In the meantime, thank you, Mr. President. It's going to be a good day because I've got a lot of content. All right, let me start with the Brooklyn Nets. And the reason I want to start with the Nets is because the Brooklyn Nets are, as they say, a problem. Now, I'm not saying that because they thrashed the Pelicans last night, 139-111. And I'm not saying it because Kevin Durant was back after two months off with a hamstring injury. I'm saying it because that basketball Voltron is starting to officially take shape. And I say that knowing that the Nets' big three have only played seven games together this season. Last night, Kevin Durant was back. James Harden is still out. Didn't matter. Just like it didn't matter that Kevin Durant didn't even start last night. Durant initially was listed as a member of the starting lineup for that return. But before the game started, he was moved to the bench. The thinking was, if you come off the bench, then you still have him in the second half in the event that the game is close. But it was not close. Ever. But it did mean that we got the weird sight of Kevin Durant coming off the bench for the first time in forever. I mean, have you ever seen that before? How weird did that look? In fact, he didn't even get into the game until there were roughly eight minutes left in the second quarter. And it looked like this. The mask is off. So is the warm-up. Two layers playing in front of Nets fans for the first time as a member of the Nets. His mom in attendance, longtime season ticket holders up on their feet. And Kevin Durant is back yes network on that call the question though was how would he look how much rust would there be to knock off considering he had been out since february well the world found out about one minute later 56 46 nets in front just under seven minutes to play in the first half durant gets a touch rises up and buries it smooth as ever smooth as ever and I'm not talking about Kevin Durant. I'm talking about Ian Eagle on the US on the S network. As much love as my man Ian gets for his work, he does not get nearly enough. That is one of the all-time great guys behind a mic. And sure, Durant was not that bad either. How much rust would there be to knock off? How about none? This cat was silk. And yes, even after all these years, it is crazy to think that a seven-footer can do what he does and make it look that smooth, make it look that easy, and especially do all that after missing two months. Like, if you're one of those people who are going to come in to clown him, 
and them, he and they are making it nearly impossible to do. So that was a welcome return to Kevin Durant making news on the court instead of on social. Because as weird and as strange as that guy is on Twitter, he's that dominant on the floor. Five for five, 17 points, seven boards, five assists in 19 minutes off the bench after missing two months. I mean, not only do you have to tip your hat, you've got to acknowledge that that's just straight stupidity. I mean, truly, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. How do you explain a guy who has not played since February 13th just showing up and looking like that? Answer is, you can't. There is no explanation. You show up and you put up those numbers and you're damn right that I'm going to overlook the six times he did turn it over. Not that any of it, though, surprised Durant. I expected to come out here and play the way I played. Uh, I wasn't trying to ease into the game. I just wanted to go out there and dive right into the action. I mean, the game was already fast-paced already, so from, uh, from watching it from the bench, I knew exactly how I needed to approach it. So, But it was, it was pretty cool coming off the bench. I can't lie. Well, in terms of easing into the game, he didn't do that. Not at all. My man went right to the deep end. In fact, he went all Thornton Mellon, Triple Lindy into the deep end as part of the Nets offense that put on a bleeping show last night. Check these numbers. The Nets hit 79% from the field, including 86% from deep in the second quarter. They put up 79 in the first half. 79 in the first half. Not that long ago that 79 points was a full game for these guys, and now they're putting it up by halftime. And they did it without James Harden. Like I said... The Nets are a real freaking problem. So exactly where is this all coming from? Well, you can start with Kyrie for one. So Claxton is the first Net off the bench with Lawawu Cabarro. You're champion of the bald community, I right? Am, I am. Okay. Rising up, full elevation, Kyrie Irving. If you saw that and it was from the Yes Network, you know what I'm talking about. They're a problem He's a problem. Pelicans head coach Stan Van Gundy was there front and center for the whole thing. He thought it was a problem. In fact, he was pissed. He didn't like that at all. He didn't like that play nor anything else that transpired during the beatdown. He said, quote, we got dominated at both ends of the floor. Totally dominated. Mm -hmm. We couldn't get out to the three-point line. Our defense was absurd. They totally dominated us, end quote. I repeat, they did put up 79 on you in the first half. And they did it with only two-thirds of their big threes. So, yes, I would agree. Your defense was absurd. But so are they. And that's why everybody around the league should be concerned right about now. Yeah, I know. I know. It's only one game. And I also know it's early April, just as I know it's against the Pelicans. But what I'm trying to say here is that this monster – This basketball Voltron is taking shape. And yes, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when they finally are tested, especially on the defensive end or on a night when maybe they're not knocking in 80% of their shots during a quarter. So no, I'm not saying that we cancel the rest of the season. But if that was Durant's first appearance with LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin, and that's how they looked, if that group is looking like that, on their first night together, look the hell out. If that's how they look, as they're coming together and starting to gel, 
the hell are they going to look like when they are officially a finished product? Again, I'll be clear about this. Running up the score on the 11 seed does not mean we crown their ass. I mean, the West is deep, but it's not that deep. And yes, there are still questions surrounding this team. And they do have to still prove it when it matters most. But that is a warning shot to the rest of the league. Because Durant is back. He looks as good as he's ever looked. And if the beard comes back and has a similar impact, then we're talking about a basketball Voltron that is pretty damn near complete. And an absolute problem to anybody who steps on the floor with them. Because it's no longer a question of do these pieces fit? And can Steve Nash handle these egos as a first-time head coach? The pieces do fit, and Nash knows exactly what he's doing. I guess what I'm trying to say is these cats might be the ones to beat. And there's no doubt in my mind, I can say this much for certain, they can run the Lakers out of the gym on some nights. Question is, can they do it four times in seven nights? And the more I watch these guys, the more I think they might be able to. The thing I still need to see is how Nash and the big three operate in late game pressure situations. You know, whether or not Nash can make the kind of adjustments that they need to make over a seven-game series. But if they're up 30 every single night, it might not matter. And they might be. Because right now they are that scary. I'll tell you this. Braun may have thought that number five was in the bag coming into this season. And I guarantee he's not thinking that anymore. Nor should anybody else. These guys might be the ones to beat. And what's even more interesting about the Nets maybe being the ones to beat, two other teams squared off last night that actually had the best records in the NBA. It was that kind of night in the association. We now have a name for our two-year-old Colt. Straight up G. I named him. So we're not going to name him Boner in Sweatpants. Sorry about that, clones. BISP is not going to work. It would have never worked anyway. They would have figured out what that was an acronym for. So, put him in your virtual stable. He does not have a trainer yet. Well, I know where he's going. But he's still being broken. He's not ready yet. He's not running yet. But he does have a name. So, if and when he ever gets to the gate, he's got a name. Straight up G. Such an awesome name. Now he has to, quote, run to it. You don't want to give... Horses that don't run fast, really good names. Because that's a bad look. Straight up G is an awesome horse name if I say so myself. Now he has to run to it. Hey, you know what? Small changes towards a healthier lifestyle can add up in a big way. But maybe you're not sure where to begin. Let me talk to you about Grove Collaborative. Running to the store has been pretty stressful of late, and there's nothing worse than forgetting something on your list and needing to make multiple trips. Shopping for home essentials should be easy and convenient, and that's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products that work, and the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? Grove Collaborative. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and your planet. 
So join over 2 million households who have trusted Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier, and shipping is fast and free on your first order. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier. For a limited time, when you go to grove.co slash Rome, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash Rome to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash Rome. These words are pinned to the very top of my Twitter feed and are about to fly right from my gap. Right here, right now. A four-year tradition, unlike any other, Steve Elkington on the Jim Rohn Podcast to preview the Masters. I don't know what's better, only having to wait six months for another trip down Magnolia Lane or only having to wait six months for another podcast with Elk. And if you thought that this all-time jungle legend and 10-time PGA Tour winner has lost any zip on his cheese, he has not. In fact, I would argue that Elk is the ultra-rare guy who only gets better and better every single time he shows up, which is saying something because, one, he is Elk, and the bar has been set really high, and number two, because he's been showing up, and we've been doing this together for the better part of 20-plus years. Yet somehow, my guy continues to show up and show out and keeps outdoing himself, and yesterday was no different because, because... Well, because Elk. Now, coming into today, there has been a major hype train behind Jordan Spieth. Let me start right there. Spieth is all of a sudden like a golf John Wick. People keep asking if I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. Spieth is thinking he's back. The media is thinking he's back. The fans are thinking he's back. The gambling public is thinking he's back. However, is Elk thinking he's back you're damn right i am and i was on this podcast in november and i was so big on science guy bryson we won't have to say that again science guy is bryson but jordan spieth mate when you think about other eras of players and that come to augusta and what skill set do they have that they're suited to win there i think of seve ballesteris i think of phil mickelson when he was in his prime i think about crenshaw well Who's more prepared than Jordan Spieth? The guy's a freak with a putter. He's a freak with a chipper. Gotten over the hump last week. Jordan Spieth is the most qualified guy for this particular Masters because of the way the setup is. Listen to the energy and the passion and how definitive he is. I mean, you could tell Elk was in the zone. So we also talked about the course setup. The course setup Elk is talking about, of course, is the usual springtime Augusta setup. Spongy fairways to limit rollout and control distance. Lightning fast greens with all sorts of trapdoor breaks. Speed has won there before. Hell, he could have gone back to back. But now he gets a chance to rip a second green jacket and Elk thinks that he is the guy to beat. Now, you also heard Elk reference Bryson DeChambeau as, quote, science guy. It's a great handle, right? Made me laugh. But it got even better as we continued to talk more and more about science guy because then Elk went Elk and just glossed him science halfway through his take and how science is going to have to do certain things this week and how science will have to do different things after he was an absolute no-show back in November. Which science guy is going to show up this week? The guy that 
smashes it over the pond at six at Bay Hill. But Science Guy had the tour by the balls in November when he walked into that event for what he did at wing foot and i was heavy on it and so were you or i made you heavy on it but he didn't play the angles he went for everything he tried to drive the green at three and made triple he tried to hit it out of the deep muff at 13 on thursday and made double and he fought his way all around the course and then he got rolled by a 65 year old german bernard langer on sunday so science left with the tail between his legs what's going to happen this week who the hell knows but if science played like Tiger played, or Jack, where he used his power on the fives and he f- learnt something from November and he laid up a few of these holes and played the angles. Mate, I don't know if science has the respect for the angles and they're going to get tricky this week and it's going to be f- interesting to see. But if science plays <laughs> the way I think he could, he's right there at the top, mate. My man. I mean, Elk. In all his glory, a few things. Those beeps are for this show. On the podcast, we do not beep anything out. There is a lot of profanity. Again, very graphic in nature. How come we never bleep out muff? Anyway, impossible to disagree with what he said. If science respects Augusta more than he did last time, then science has a chance to do a lot better than he did in November. If science can make the smart decisions and adjustments and pick his spots, then science might bag himself a second major. Yes, science! Speaking of huge hitters, chasing distance and chasing a green jacket, here is a quick taste of how Elk feels about his guy, Rory McIlroy, this week. He's got to get a Grand Slam. He's going to Grand Slam his head into the locker if he doesn't get his together, Jim. I mean, give me a break. He's not going to get it this week. Quote, he's going to Grand Slam his effing head into the locker if he doesn't get his bleep together. And right now, apparently, he's not because he's two over through six. Perfectly said, and Elk is almost always right. Now, the Masters is all about the guys who are there and who have a chance Christian to win. But joining us. it's impossible to not Virginia to notice Tech. who will you not start be there the first, for the first game time of in a your decade. freshman year at left tackle. Ricky That's really Fowler. rare. Welcome what do you Ricky remember about Fowler. that and earning that job and then debuting against you know, Florida Rick State? Flower. Uh, Rick it's Flower. like all the hard work. Um, just, extremely just popular guy like the older tour, guys in the he's room. been in the tank. Um, like how to train, fact, how to take your body and everything. all tanks. Didn't even get an uh, invite to Augusta. In that. That's how bad it is. Then, like, just now, that job. Elk I knows a lot of guys. I could lose at any moment, Rick. so I just had to keep I know working Elk hard likes Rick. and everything. And this is and I what couldn't get, Elk like, had to say about why and how Rick's game got busted up in the state of that game right now. That first game was for the state, Brian Burns, man. I was going to say, it wasn't just that first game. At left tackle in Florida State, it was against Brian Burns, who went on to be a first-round pick, and he had nine sacks last year for the Panthers. So, what was that matchup like? Oh man, it was crazy. Like, I didn't even know who he was until like the night before we were in the hotel. Um, me and my roommate, we were both freshmen, we watching. Uh, like the, I don't, it was game on. And we seen the commercials like us playing them, and they showed '99. I was like, who is that? Awesome was I looked him up. I was like, oh my god, he was on like the premiere of the end. College football, I was like, man, it's gonna be a tough one. Who is that? That's that dude I'm gonna have to deal with all day long. Christian Derrissaw joining us. So then you got Vance Vice, who was your offensive line coach at Tech. He said that what sets you apart is that you obviously work really hard with 
the team in practice, but you do a lot of stuff on your own. Where did that approach come from, and what kinds of things were you doing on your own off to the side? I think there's a lot of problems. I really can't play the older guys. It's like what Texas gets that next level. And just going extra, going more. It's really what it's going to take to be a better player. And it's just like coming in before practice, maybe like watching a little bit of film. Elk is like Tiger. He's the Tiger. Working on different steps and techniques. Jack. That I feel like I was Arnie, a podcast guest. All rolling Another thing I would do. I don't even know if like I can quote that, that back, but essentially what he just so. said Definitely was that Rick needs to do what Christian Steve Darius did, and, and that's, quote, so in your mind, what makes a great offensive of tackle, for instance, of the is it technique, is it work ethic, now, is it film study, would not is be a it podcast something else, elk. what's the great story? And nobody can spin your arm like this guy. Yesterday he told a couple great stories about playing in the Masters with Raymond Floyd. Here is part of one of those stories. Remember one year he was playing that set or whatever. You definitely know how he's going to react. And then it's like a guy who cares about the game, really. You've got to be physical at all times. There's no like, never take a playoff, really. Once you take that playoff, that might be the player that I need to win the game. So just don't take a playoff. You gotta be physical, smart. Across the green, uh, know what the defenses are doing. That comes to watching film. And I really feel like you'll be set the board. From there. All right. So with this mindset and with a work ethic like that, with your base talent, you're getting a lot of attention right now as a potential first-round pick. What's your reaction when you hear that? And what would it mean to you to go in the first round? My reaction. I'm really not trying to like buy into the hype and everything. When Jeff Mack gets here, we'll see what happens and everything. I know anything can happen on Jeff Mack. So it's like. Halfway that, there. that part By is what it is, but you can't get too big here, like hole, I said. Man, he was on um, the sixteen. It's just like head turned. Well, Zach, like, when I do hear my name called, it's like a dream come true. And I thought, um, all the hard work that I put in and everything, to finally like just to get to this level. Oh, oh, so finally, where do you come out on this? Like you're taking this all in stride, as I might expect. But by the so way, is there a part of you that feels like you know I've done all the work and, neck and I'm finally up right getting now. the respect that I've earned? And I heard this conversation this like yesterday when I taped it, and a day from later, Prince George's County, I'm Maryland. still tripping on Elk. Oh yeah, two star recruit. Twenty years later, I'm still tripping on. We're talking about the draft. It's coming up on April 29th, the 2021 NFL Draft. Another name to watch, getting a lot of attention every single year. Potential first round pick, Christian Darius, on my guest, Great to have you on the show. You Good luck with him. that, and I'll look he for you once you, you decide or it once is a it is decided where you end friendship up. I'd love to talk to you again. And relationship all the Thank way you. around. Check that out. Do not wait until the weekend. Spin that after the show, on your ride home, or doing your workout tonight, or streaming at the office. When I get off the air, you can find it everywhere. It's on my Twitter feed. It's on Spotify. It's on Google Play. It's wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. There are 45 minutes of that. 45 minutes of that, and words of the wise, once again, this particular ep is extremely graphic in nature. It's extremely profane. If that sort of thing does bother you, I understand it. I respect it. If so, sit this one out, because four-letter bombs were flying out his pie hole early and often, early and often. When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK Dell. That's 877-ASK-DELL. We're joined by a senior NFL reporter for Yahoo. He is a good friend of this program. He is Charles Robinson. 
My guy, Charles. How you doing, dude? I'm doing well, brother. How you doing today? Good, good. It's really good to hear your voice, and it's good to have you on the program. Let me start first, Charles, with Deshaun Watson. You have been all over this situation for quite some time now. Can you take me back a few weeks to when Watson took to social media on March 16th to deny the allegations that were coming in a pending lawsuit? What was your impression of the situation at that time? I, you know, I was. I think I was surprised, like most people were. Anyone that's been associated with, you know, the NFL, Deshaun Watson, teams that have, you know, that did a lot of vetting on him coming out of Clemson, just what his general reputation has been around the league. Um, you know, I, I think it was just initially shock, and and the way that the filing attorney went about, um, you know, putting the case out there on Instagram was very unusual. Um, it seemed very uh, aimed at, at, you know, being an attention grabber. And so, you know, I think a lot of people approached it with uh, skepticism, caution, um, sort of a let's see how this unfolds mentality. And I would say it spiraled very quickly. Um, and, you know, to go from, I think it went from one to six by, you know, between a Tuesday and a Thursday. Now we're at 22 civil suits being filed against Deshaun Watson. You have a an account in, in Sports Illustrated, an anonymous account from someone who hasn't filed a, a suit um, that seems to overlap with a lot of the, the litigation in the case. You have now two accusers coming out and, and putting their names onto the suits themselves, one of them very tearfully in a statement. Um, it's I think it has spiraled about as badly as it possibly could for Deshaun Watson to the point where now we see Nike, you know, pausing their deal and, and you know, I told I spoke to someone, um, an industry source that was you know involved in the Nike deal on Nike's end, and just said, "Hey, look, this is up in the air now. His his relationship with us is definitely um, in jeopardy." And Beats by Dre, owned by Apple, drops him. Um, you know, Reliant Energy comes out, distances themselves, says we've we've terminated our relationship. HEB, huge uh, grocery store chain in Texas, says, "Hey, we didn't even renew after his deal ended in 2020." Once you get corporations backing away like that you have litigation you have civil litigation you have the nfl doing its own investigation into deshaun watson with the idea that he could potentially be placed on the the commissioner's exempt list and then you have the houston police department that is investigating a criminal complaint um that's three prongs of of battle that now his legal team has to deal with and I'd say that, you know, up until this point, he's taken a pretty significant loss in this. My God, that's an amazing answer. I mean, you literally covered at least a half a dozen questions that I was going to ask you. So I really, really appreciate that response. Charles Robinson is my guest. All right, so what about Roger Goodell? Does he need to have proof that Watson has violated the personal conduct policy in order to place him on the exempt list or just the belief that a violation may have happened? How do you think that plays out? That you nailed it right there. He he does not need to have proof. He only he only has to have the belief that a violation could have potentially happened. That's it. That's the people have to understand the NFL's judicial standard is completely different than anything else. And also the the commissioner's is exempt list. It's not a suspended without pay. It's actually um, essentially a suspension with pay or or a you're you're sitting someone aside from the roster saying, look, you can't take part in football activities. Um, you can't be in the team facility, all these different things. You're basically on timeout. And during that timeout, you're going to continue to be paid, but we're going to sort out all these other things that could have violated the personal conduct policy because we have a reasonable 
positioned to believe that might have occurred. And if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, well, how does Roger Goodell weigh this now? You have 22 pieces of, of civil litigation. You have the Sports Illustrated account. You have now two accusers who have come out and made statements publicly, one verbally, and then another one through a letter that was written and read during a press conference. And then you have the, the Houston Police Department saying, we have a criminal complaint that's been filed. We are investigating that. And then you even have the statements from Deshaun Watson's own attorney, Rusty Harden, who has repeatedly said Deshaun Watson never forced anybody to do anything. He's not saying incidents didn't occur. He's not saying he doesn't know these, you know, these accused, uh, the accusers. He's not saying anything. He's just saying he never forced anyone to do anything. And when you add in this idea that corporations are now saying, other corporations not named the NFL, like Nike, are saying, ah, we're going to pull back here. We have a problem with where this is right now. I think it puts immense pressure on Roger Goodell under what their standard is of what might have happened, given the preponderance of evidence that's out there, everything that's out there, or at least the accusations. It's reasonable, I would think, that someone could look at Roger Goodell and go, okay, well, if this isn't the standard of potentially violating the personal conduct policy, then what is? I think that's fair. Charles Robinson is joining us. Charles, I mentioned in the intro that you're a good friend of the program and one of my favorite people to speak with. You're also the friend and colleague of another one of my favorites, Therese Paler. After he passed, you wrote a beautiful piece about him and about how he always had your back. How are you doing these days? I'm good. You know, um, it's been a, it's, you know, I think it's something when you lose someone really close to you, you, um, have a continual kind of process of realizing that that person isn't around. You know, I think, you know, Therese and I, it was, it was, it's funny because even yesterday I did, um, I did a Skype hit with like NBC. And when I was looking at my Skype account, it had Therese and I on it, um, the, the last day of his life. And I, I thought to myself, I, I didn't really remember the time that he and I had spoken. And I think it, I looked at it and I was like, wow, we, we literally logged off. I know the exact time the last time I saw him, like 6.38, the day that, that he passed away. And, um, you know, you, you, you have a lot of these continual reminders. But for the most part, I miss, you know, you miss his personality. You miss his friendship. And, and really, even from the standpoint of, of the collegial end of it, you realize the void that's here right now in terms of what he would be writing, the things that we would be talking about, things he could bring to the table. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a loss, you know, for m- myself personally, from a, a friendship standpoint, I think it's a loss for his fiance, Ebony Reed, um, you know, his, his, his parents. And I think everybody in general who loves the NFL, this is, this is a time when particularly going into the draft, you know, we're working on Dresden annual all juice team where, um, you know, he, he kind of pick and choose guys that weren't necessarily under the radar, but guys that he really thought were going to flourish at the next level. So myself, Pete Samuel, Eric at home, we're putting together that team to kind of honor him. And, um, you know, also there's a, a, a joint scholarship between Yahoo Sports, the Kansas City Star and the Wall Street Journal to create an endowment for a journalism student at Howard University, which was Therese's alma mater. So if anybody's interested, um, if you give me a chance just to plug it here, sure. hit me up on Twitter or, you know, um, I, I'd be happy to pass along any of that information to to uh, to donate. He's a great guy. He's going to be missed. You know, somebody I will remember the rest of my life as 
I'm sure, Jim, you've lost people in your life that you know you'll carry with them forever. No doubt. Charles Robinson, my guest, not only am I okay with you plugging that, I was going to ask you about that, so a quick follow before I let you go. The scholarship fund has been set up in his honor at Howard University. I mean, how fitting a tribute and legacy is that for Therese? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 massive. And, and you know, you, if you'd gotten to know Therese, I, I think – one of the great parts about his journey as a person, and I think even as a sports journalist, was that this is what he wanted to do. You know, it was, you know, he, he went to school in Detroit, he went to Howard University, but he knew, you know, through that, that journey from, from high school to college to, to where he ultimately landed up as a national writer with us, it, it's, this was the end goal. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be a national writer. He wanted to cover football. He really wanted to, you know, share in the experience with a lot of people and, and fans and, continue to love the game I think he the way he thought a lot of readers loved it and I think he would really it would be the best embodiment of his spirit for him to think that hey there's there's someone out there a young man or woman who is sitting there saying hey that's really something I want to do someday so you know this endowment I think is part of just keeping the spirit of who who he was um, alive for all of us and, and giving someone the opportunity that he ultimately earned. I think it's tremendous. I love the man, and I think that he was a tremendous journo and even better guy, and I also miss him very much. He's a senior NFL reporter for Yahoo. He is a very good friend of the program. He is Charles Robinson. I'm so glad you and I, Charles, could get caught up. It's great to hear your voice. Great to have you on the show. Stay safe. Take care, and it's good to have you back, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. And also, I want to say a personal thanks for Therese. He and I talked about coming on your show all the time absolute favorite show for us to do and and i know it meant a lot to him and and you know i I think you should know that too that he really really enjoyed the time here it was fun together i I really appreciate you saying that i feel exactly the same way about him he is one of my personal favorites i loved having him on the show and i'm glad that he respected it and got that much out of it because i feel the exact same way about both you guys too charles thanks for sharing that appreciate you and i appreciate that story very much therese was an amazing guy such a good dude and cared so much about the craft and worked so hard at the craft and got so good at the craft and was so beloved and so well-respected around the NFL. And he will always be missed, always appreciated and always missed. So that was so good. That's the first time that Charles has been on since the passing of Therese. So it's really good to get caught up with him too. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Of course. This time, though, don't make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire, and it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? If you want to talk about a tradition unlike any other, if there's a big event, if there is a slam or a major, this is the guy that I also look for right away. He is a GolfChannel.com senior writer. He is Rex number 7. You can follow him on Twitter at Rex. Hogger GC. He is a good friend of the program. He is all about Augusta National. He joins us right now. Rex, it's so good to have you back. Rex, how are you? This is that is perfect. Train wreck Thursday is exactly what's going to happen. Thanks for having me back. It is going to happen. I know it too. All right. So last time you and I spoke, you were at Augusta uh, in November, and now you're back. I mean, how weird does it feel to be back this soon? 
It, it was stark, and I think it's because in November everything was so different. There were no patrons. The golf course played completely different. I mean, it was soft. It was gettable. Guys could attack. Dustin Johnson shoots 20 under par, and we showed up this week, and it's what we've come to expect from an April Masters. The golf course is firm and fast, exactly what those here want. They want to put up a challenging test. You have the patrons back. It's a smaller footprint, but you still get a little bit of it. The flowers are blooming. It's almost like it was two worlds. Like what we had in November was nice, but this feels like the real Masters. We are talking to Rex Hoggard. It's exactly what Steve Elkinson was saying on our podcast yesterday, almost word for word. Now, you played Palmetto Golf Club earlier this week. How would you describe the conditions today compared, or I should say, or how similar are they to Augusta National this week? How similar are the two? It's Augusta National without the green grass. It was uh, the same architect, Alistair McKenzie. It's the same piece of land, essentially a lot of rolling hills. You just don't have the lush grass. It's it's hard. It's rolling. It's fast. And, and that's what you're seeing today. It was funny. I was talking with someone that knows a lot more about stats than, than I do, and we were talking about that 20 under mark. And I asked him, where would you set the over-under? And he goes, the over-under right now is at 12 and a half. And just, there's no way you get to that. I mean, it's going to play – exactly like we've come to expect even with a little bit of rain in the forecast it's going to be a difficult test rex hoggard is joining us rex one more thing about the morning it continued with the tradition of the honorary starters you had jack nicholas gary player also lee elder what was that moment like it was a little surreal and it was very cool what they did to have lee elder on the tee uh, because of health reasons he wasn't able to actually hit the tee shot but he was there and i think it meant a lot i mean when they announced this in november this was sort of and they don't do this at Augusta National, but this was social commentary. This was understanding and recognizing what was going on in our country and that there were divides in our country and that this was maybe a way to sort of bring us a little bit closer together and recognize what we need to do to maybe make our country a little bit better. So I I give Augusta National full credit for, you know, they can sometimes seem like they hide behind the gates, but in this particular case, I feel like they were out front and they did the right thing. Rex number seven is joining us, golfchannel.com, senior writer Rex Hoggard, good friend of the program. So, Rex, Jordan Spieth is coming into the Masters, coming off that win in Texas. How did he look to you last week, and what's that mean for him coming into this week? I mean, he had been trending in that direction for a long time. He had been getting close. There had been a lot of reasons for him to start gaining that confidence that was missing. But the one thing that hadn't been there is closing on a Sunday and even at the match play a few weeks ago where it seems like every round feels like a Sunday round. You could see it like it just wasn't perfect. And so for him to do what he did last weekend in San Antonio under that kind of pressure to shoot that kind of score, it's not mission accomplished. And he knows that and he'll be the first one to tell you that. But it's certainly a huge step forward. I mean, I don't know if it bodes particularly well for this week, because I think winning back-to-back on the PGA Tour is probably one of the hardest things to do in golf, which makes what Tiger Woods did for so long so special. But it, it bodes well when he's able to close out on a Sunday. And you're seeing those, those things that he does so well that makes it magical, you know, the long putts and sort of the fidgety and the nervous energy. All of those things bode very well. Rex Hoggard is joining us. So let me jump ahead to Tiger since you mentioned him. You wrote about this for the Golf Channel website, but how noticeable is the absence of Tiger Woods? It was funny. Like, he's missed the Masters in recent years because of various injuries, but this one felt absolutely different, especially on Tuesday going to the Champions Dinner. I mean, Justin Thomas talked about it. I mean, they've gotten in a tradition where it's JT and Tiger and Fred Couples. And the running joke is Tiger always asks JT, well, where are you eating tonight? Because, you know, that's, that's, that's the punchline, right? That's right. the jab where, oh, you're eating in your hotel? Very nice. We're, we're going to the Champions Dinner with Green Jackets. And it, 
I, I just think it was a cool moment to sort of point out that this week is a lot more than just, oh, okay, you're a five-time champion, you're coming back. I mean, Tiger Woods is Augusta National, like pimento cheese and pine trees. I mean, he's a huge part of this place, and the fact that he's not here, and the reason he's not here, we all saw the car after the crash. I mean, it's absolutely amazing that he was able to, I, I want to say survive. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but certainly you look at that car and you, you're thankful that it wasn't worse than it probably could have been. So all of those things factored into, I think, there was a very, very real sense of missing Tiger Woods this week. No, you're right. Rex Harvard joining us. You're right about that. And that anecdote that you share is actually very, very good. So, for instance, like how different is the relationship then between Tiger and other golfers now versus his relationships with players earlier in his career? Oh, night and day. Like, I mean, he's willing to, to sit down and talk to the JTs of the world. I mean, Justin has been to his house in recent weeks, and he talked about the reason he wanted to go there was to, to help Tiger, the way Tiger has helped him in his career. I mean, he's in a very, very bad spot right now. And he said it's important to let him know that I'll do anything for you. You need me to pick up McDonald's for you and bring it over, whatever the case may be. Rory is a very similar spot, and he wasn't like that earlier in his career. I mean, there was the stoic you know, exterior. He wasn't going to look beyond the blinders, especially when Thursday rolled around, and he certainly wasn't giving away a lot of the clues and a lot of the secrets when it came to Augusta or anywhere else earlier in his career. We are talking to Rex Hoggard. All right, Rex, let me uh, ask you about Bryson DeChambeau. What do you make of his approach to Augusta National this year and the show that he put on in the practice area on Monday? I mean, it's entertaining. If you're not entertained by Bryson, I don't know that you're a fan of sports. Now, maybe... I've heard some of the purists talk about, well, maybe he's not doing what's best for the game, and that's a conversation that I don't feel even qualified to have. But I remember asking Xander Schauffele last year, uh, late last year when he won the U.S. Open at Wingfoot if Bryson was redefining the game, and Xander kind of thought about it, and he goes, I think he's exploiting the game. And that's probably a good way of putting it, that you may not like it. It may not aesthetically pleasing. It's not the way you would probably want to swing the golf club. But watching that display, I mean, I was exhausted sitting there watching him just pound shot after shot, not taking a breath, not taking a break, sweat dripping. He's in a frenzy. It's just a different way of playing golf, and I can't wait for him to tee off this afternoon. Like, it's entertaining in my mind. I agree. I get a kick out of the guy myself. I get a real kick out of the guy, but I'm not enough of a purist, I guess. But it does not – not only does it not offend my sensibilities, I love it. I think it's good for the game myself. Earlier this week, Rex, you said that Patrick Reed was your favorite. Why is that? What do you like about his game and his approach right now? When you look at the way he came in here and when he won, very, very trending, very, very similar. Obviously, he won just a few weeks ago at Torrey Pines, which, which is big, but it's the stuff in between where he still has solid finishes. He's still coming up well week in and week out. I was just talking with a guy who knows a lot more about stats than I do. And he said, look, the two things you look at on this golf course is greens and regulation. There's like this magic number. If you can hit 52 greens this week, you're going to have a really good chance of winning this tournament and par four scoring. And that's two things that Patrick does really, really well. Rex Harder joins me for another moment. Rex, I want to ask you one more thing. You were discussing this on your Golf Central podcast earlier this week. You were talking about the three top Masters sandwiches. Let me just jump in with one in particular. The pimento cheese sandwich. It's the thing that everybody talks about. But as you've said, Rex, it tastes like mustard, dirt, and silly putty. So how do you explain the popularity of the pimento cheese sando? I feel like there's... The tradition and everyone feels like, and I, I mean, you had to eat it when you come here. You had to try it. It's just, I don't, not anything I would like. And, and I think what I was trying to do is the colleague on the podcast was referring to a new chicken salad brioche sandwich, which I thought made him sound like a crazy person because I, 
I'm not going to eat pimento cheese, but when you come to Augusta, you don't try a new sandwich. There's other sandwiches, the club, the chicken sandwich, all of these things. I mean, he just sounds insane to me when he brought that up. All right, so break down then. What are your top three, if that's the case? I'm an egg salad sandwich guy. I know it's not for everyone, but I'm going to go egg salad. Uh, the club is very, very good. It's, it's, it's cheese. It's ham. It's, it's a lot of mayonnaise, which probably isn't great for you. And then I'll go with the chicken. And uh, before, I, I've never done this, but I just wanted to say this morning, talking about podcasts, uh, I listened to your Chad Wright podcast, dude, and you absolutely crushed it. Uh, as a Marine, as someone who served in the military, that was absolutely incredible. Thanks, man. Rex, I really appreciate you saying that. I appreciate your service, and I appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much for sharing that. You can follow him on Twitter at Rex Hogger GC. He is Rex number seven. He is GolfChannel.com senior writer, Rex Hogger. Rex, I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, and I know we'll do it again soon. Enjoy the Masters. You too, Rex. Enjoy the Masters. We are joined by a two-time Olympic medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling. An Olympic gold medalist in 2000, an Olympic bronze medalist in 2004, a world champion in 2001, a distinguished member of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, the subject of the documentary, Rulon, which is streaming on OlympicChannel.com, and also he has lived an amazing life. We are joined by Rulon Gardner. Rulon, it's so good to have you on the program. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's good to be on, Jim. Look forward to, you know, I've looked up to you for many years, so it's a pleasure to be on. My friend, it's so good to hear your voice, and I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for many, many years as well, because your story really is the stuff of legends. I mean, the stuff of movies. It would make sense then that you would be the subject of a documentary. Listen, I got to say, a lot of people listening right now, I think, are familiar with some of your backstory, but there's so many parts of it that are worth starting back or worth sharing. If we go back to the very beginning, you were the youngest of nine kids, and you grew up on a dairy farm in Wyoming. What was life like for you growing up? Well, you could kind of say that uh, life was about uh, kind of survival at that point. Uh, being the youngest of nine, I had a brother who his name was Reynolds, and he beat me up uh, you know, on the farm, but then also... Um, on the wrestling mat all the way until the end of my senior year. So I was kind of number two to my own family. And then, you know, growing up, I, I was also diagnosed with a learning disability. So I was told as a young kid, I would probably never graduate from high school and, you know, go do anything more than just being a farmer. And for me, you know, those were things that kind of motivated me. And I had a, a very strong mother who went back to nursing school when she was 50 years old. And she was kind of the inspiration to, you know, give me the ability that I believe that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. Well, there's so much stuff in that. Such a great answer right there in and of itself. Rulon Gardner joining us. So, like the farm itself, I'm curious, what kind of work did you do on that farm? What was that like? Well, if uh, if, if you look at the summer months, uh, you know, people think, oh, you athletes are, you know, you guys are year-round wrestlers. And for me, growing up, uh, we wrestled four days a year, and the rest of the year was working on the farm. So our summers would start at about 6.30 in the morning, and uh, we would typically end about midnight, uh, you know, changing pipes, hauling hay, uh, um, you know, uh, spraying weeds. Uh, we did everything we could to survive. Where I grew up is about an hour south of Jackson Hole, Yellowstone area, so it's very beautiful, but it's very cold in the winter, so, you know, we've been 50 below plus, you know, um, in the winter months growing up, so for us, it was just kind of a daily battle to survive, and then, you know, when got to high school i would get done with uh you know wrestling or football practice and you come home and you do all the chores and a lot of times you don't get in the house until 
you know, nine to nine thirty at night, and then you try to go do homework and get dinner, and then go to bed and start it again the next day. Wow. Rulon Gardner joining us. You know, we had a house in Big Sky, Montana for about a decade. I know those winters. It is brutal. It is so cold and it is brutal. Now, the story goes, you began wrestling at age six. How did you first get into it and what did you like about it when you started? Well, what I liked about wrestling was it got me off the farm. Mm. That was probably the first and most important thing is it got me off the farm. But the problem was is you know, me and my brother were kind of bigger kids. You know, we weren't huge, but for bigger kids, and the only people that we had each other, and we would just beat the tar out of each other. So for me, I, I didn't beat him until I was the end of my junior year in high school. So all those years, you know, he used to kind of tease me. And my coaches are like, Ruland, you know, you were so much better than your brother. Why can't you beat him? I'm like, I don't know. And you know, he just had that mental thing being older and, you know, being kind of a little bit more physical than I was. And so it just, you know, taught me from a young age, just keep, you know, getting up, getting up and, you know, trying to learn. And I think a, a lot of it was, you know, my learning disability was cognitive, cognitive understanding. And um, a lot of my coach, I remember as a young kid, they would get frustrated and they kind of, sometimes they'd walk away and say, you'll never get it. And it just made me want it that much more because people didn't think I'd ever get it. And finally, you know, when I got the chance to, to get good and to go to college and then, you know, drive myself to be better and get better at wrestle. And I, I really, you know, pushed the effort into, developing my mind and I think you know making the Olympic team at 29 years old I was a late you know bloomer but then you know I learned when most people were happy and content oh I won an NCAA title I'm like well yeah I'm sure I got more I'm sure I got better things to do and you know I haven't even seen my potential and you know everybody thinking that high school and college is the, the, the pinnacle of wrestling I'm like then you go out and meet these Russians and it's like these dudes are pretty dang good so I got a lot to learn, and it, you know, it didn't happen until I was you know, basically 30 years old. Roland Gardner joining us. He's the subject of a brand-new documentary of that name. It's streaming right now on the OlympicChannel.com. You know, when you mentioned the learning disability that you have, inevitably you end up going to college and you go to Nebraska. In fact, let me ask you about that. What was it about Lincoln? Because you were being recruited. You had won a junior college championship at Ricks College, so a lot of schools were coming for you for wrestling. What was it about Lincoln that made you feel like that was the right spot? Well, I had the opportunity to go to Oklahoma State. I had the opportunity to go to BYU, uh, you know, my whole family. And I was kind of the black sheep of the family at this point because my whole family graduated from the University of Wyoming. So Wyoming was just wasn't, uh, you know, I think the the higher level. And when I got to Wyoming, you know, they pretty well said, hey, we'll, we'll help you get the degree. And I got to Nebraska, and they said, uh, you know, you don't have what it takes. And so, you know, hearing that, you know, kind of motivated me and then, we had a really good recruiting class. We ended up beating Iowa and Dan Gable back in the day. And so when I finally got the chance to you know, make that uh, trip to Nebraska, I ended up uh, just being really impressed with uh, you know, the staff, the facility, Tim Newman, Mark Cody. You know, they had such a great coaching staff. And you know, we put a great team together, especially my senior year. We beat Iowa. You know, we fell short at Nationals and took third my senior year. But uh, you know, we, just, we just had such, I think, a class of organization Plus, you know, the university was pretty amazing. It wasn't easy. You know, they told me day one, I got to Nebraska. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're a junior college graduate. You'll never make it through our program because you're going into phys ed, the fourth hardest degree at the university. You just don't have what it takes. And, you know, that just pissed me off and made me want it that much more. My man, so how much pride is there in the fact that you did get that diploma? You did what they said you couldn't do. How much pride do you have in having that diploma? Well, the way I kind of looked at it was, is you know, they, they told me, you know, when I got there, like, you'll never make it. And then 
what I didn't realize was is when I had, when I had transferred there out of 64 credits, they only accepted 16 of them. And so for me, you know, not having the respect of, uh, you know, the, the university to say, you know what, we'll back you no matter what, I, I really wanted to, to push myself. And so for me, it was just, you know, stay focused. You know, you're not probably going to you know be the best wrestler. You're not going to be the smartest wrestler, but you're going to give your best every day. And that's all I could offer is, you know, showing up and doing my best. Roland Gardner joining us. He's got a brand new documentary out as well that's streaming right now. So your best NCAA finish in Nebraska was fourth. And then in 1995, you won the USA Wrestling Greco-Roman National Championship. Then you won the World Cup the next year. But let me fast forward to the Sydney Games in 2000. What kind of plans and expectations did you have for yourself going to Sydney? Well, that's that's where it got to get kind of crazy because – you look at it, and I had to beat Mac Afari, who was the Olympic silver medalist from the 96 Olympics. And he was there. He was, you know, kind of like my brother. You know, he would antagonize me, you know, ruling, you'll never beat me, kind of trash talking. And it kind of made me mad. And so, you know, going into the Olympics, I had never beat Mac Afari until I finally got to the trials. And then I finally beat him. I made the Olympic team. I'm like, yeah, things are looking up. I'm, you know, you're going to come out and you're going to show the world how good you are. And, I went to a tournament a month before the Olympics in Russia, and in the tournament, I'm like, okay, you know, Rulin, you, you finally come out, you're on your own, you're going to show, and the big Russian Karelin didn't want to, you know, show any of his technique, so he set out and didn't actually wrestle that tournament, and so I went out there, and I got to the finals of the tournament, and I thought, you know what, you're going to show them, and I went to the finals, and I went right after, his name was Yuri Patrykiev, and I went right after him, and 13 seconds, he threw me and pinned me, and I hadn't been pinned since I was in junior high. So it was pretty humiliating and humbling, but it was probably the best thing to ever happen to me because it got my head right and it made me realize, you know what, you're good, but you're not that good. Mm. Roland Gardner joining us. So you mentioned Corellin. As many people remember, you had to face Corellin in the gold medal match. At that time, he was a three-time defending gold medalist. He had not lost in 13 years. He had not dropped a point in six years. What was your mindset going into that match? Well, going into it, and, and Coach Steve Frazier was uh, my national team coach and Olympic champion from the 84 Olympics. And, you know, Steve was like, okay, you know, Ruin, we don't really know how to beat him. The only time I had wrestled him before in 1997, he had thrown me on my head, and he had a move called the reverse lift, and he actually broke two vertebrae on my neck in that match. And so as I came off the mat, I, I realized this guy's pretty good. And so Sidney, you know, he, he used the intimidation. He'd shake your hand, and, you know, your hand would disappear in his, and, he was six five, six six. He was just the, you know, they called him the experiment. And so going into it, my coach is like, Ruin, he expects to win. They already announced his retirement party. He's overlooking you. So what you got to do is come out because he had watched me barely win my semifinals. I was losing two nothing, and I beat a former Russian who had moved to Israel, and I beat him, and I came back from being down two nothing to beat him three to two. And so I'm going into the finals, and everybody said, oh, it, it's going to be an easy finals for Corell. And well. You know, the thing is, is when you compete, you always look to the best in the world, and that's the person you go after. And so in my head, I had envisioned myself wrestling him for many years. And so I think I kind of developed a, a, I don't know if it's something special, but a way to compete with him that most people didn't. And, you know, that's the thing about growing up the way I did is most people are saying, you know, Ruben, you can't do it. And that was just the, the perfect opportunity. All I've ever asked for in my life is an opportunity. You know, some people look at it as an obstacle. I just look at it as an opportunity to, 
to prove them wrong and to go out and accomplish something. There's obviously so much in this to see adversity for what it is and opportunity. Roland Gardner joining us. I think it's amazing, too, the coaches said, hey, listen, by the way, we don't know how to beat this guy. We literally don't know how to beat this guy. But you have been building up for this moment your entire lifetime. You end up winning. It's regarded as one of the greatest upsets in the history of all of sports. What kind of emotions were you feeling after that match was over and you had won that gold medal? Well, the, the, the funny part is everybody, my family, after all said and done, my family was like, Roland, we knew you were going to succeed. We knew that you were going to beat Corral. And I'm like, are you guys crazy? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, it wasn't confidence. It was, you know, it was, you know, kind of cluelessness, I guess you could say, because I didn't think I had a shot at beating them. But you know what? You always put yourself in the game. If you at least put yourself out, you always have a chance. And so, you know, after I'd won the match, everybody, you know, came back and everybody's like, you know, you know, did, did you expect to beat them? And I'm like, no. I'm like, I was just out there to compete and, you know, give my best effort. You know, I had no expectation going in because once I made the Olympic team, all the people around, you know, wrestling had said, oh, well, there goes any chance of us winning a medal. You know, Ruin, you've never won a medal at the, you know, the world competition level. So, you know, why would you do anything different? Well, like you said, I had been kind of preparing for that moment my whole life. And the coaches and the beliefs that they gave me just made me believe in myself. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to leave Australia without one stone unturned. I'm going to give 100%. And that's, that's what I did. Well, and the amazing thing is, like, normally at this point, I would say, man, that what an amazing story. Congratulations to you and congratulations to your life. And where can our listeners find this documentary? But this is not the end of this story. Nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. I mean, you win a world championship the following year. And then in 2002, you're snowmobiling with some friends in Wyoming. At one point, you become separated from the group. You fall into a freezing river with your snowmobile. What happened? What do you remember about that moment? Well, as I, I was pulling my snowmobile because I was trying to, to get back to where my friends were, but the problem was the snow was about six feet deep, and so I dropped down in, and I thought oh, I could just follow the ravine back to my hometown and meet up with my friends, and we'll be fine. It was Valentine's Day, and so you know we just went for a quick ride, and I was actually in the river, and I pulled my snowmobile back, and I fall in the river, and I fall backwards, and I turn over, so now everything I have is wet. And being that we were only going for a, a short ride, I didn't wear all my correct gear. I didn't have my real thick, you know, my winter park. I didn't have all that. I just had a T-shirt, sweatshirt, and a fleece top. It was, you know, met because when I go riding, I'm pulling my snowbill. I'm sweating, and, you know, it was going to be an easy ride. So I didn't prepare. So at that point, I realized, Rulin, you're truly in trouble. Leave your snowbill in the river. You know, go find a place. You know, try to make a, a you know, a little fort or something to, you know, give yourself some, you know, I guess, protection from the wind and the cold that was coming. And it was just getting dark at about 4.30, I got wet. And then I left my snowmobile in the river about 7 o'clock. And I actually found some trees. And I stood up and I sat down, uh, you know, and, and I didn't, the problem about being out there is yourself, you know, your cell signal won't work. People know you're lost, but they don't know where you're at. And so by the time they get a search party put together, it takes hours and hours. And I was waiting from about 7.30 at night underneath the tree, until about 2.30 in the morning where I could hear them within 200 yards. But the problem was is nobody dared follow me because I dropped my snowmobile into the river. I'm going down the river, and these people are like, this guy's crazy. You know, he, you know he's, he's doing things that most people wouldn't. Why is he going in the river? I'm like, well, it's the only thing I could do to try to save myself until finally I just had to leave my snowmobile and just wait to be rescued. And, you know, from 2.30 to about 4.30 in the morning, at 4.30 I, I saw the – you know, the Almighty, I saw Jesus and God, and I lost a brother when I was eight years old. We lost him to aplastic anemia, and 
I was sitting, you know, there in this vision, and, and they came to me and they asked me to, to come home and die, and I said, no, not not yet. I'm like, I'm just getting good at wrestling. I'm just figuring things out. I'm like, I want to come back and win the, you know, the, win the Olympics again. And I remember waking up out of that vision and realizing that you're freezing to death, but you know, you're still alive. But you know, you're gonna have to focus. And finally, about seven o'clock in the morning, they had spotted me. But because the Olympics were going in Utah, they couldn't get to where I was at. And so for three hours, I had an airplane circle me because they couldn't fly any helicopters out of Utah and Salt Lake to come pick me up. And finally, about three hours later, they picked me up, and my core temperature was measured at 80, deg- or 80 degrees at about 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'd been up there for over 15 hours or over 18 hours, and the, the temperature was between 25 and 30 below zero. Roland Gardner joining us. Absolutely insanity. 18 hours, you have hypothermia, you have frostbite. They had to use a saw to take off your boots. There was concern that you were going to lose your feet. As it turns out, you had a toe amputated. Legend has it you kept that toe in the fridge as a reminder. Is that true? Yes, it was. It, it, you, you probably asked him, why, why did I do it? Why um, did you do that? The, probably the best reason is, you know, in failure, you need reminders to you know, remind you why you failed. And so for me, it was, you know, this is what happens if you make bad decisions and stupid you know, mistakes in life, you know, you're going to have to pay the price. And so same reason, you know, I went to the hospital, the doctor's like, Oh, do you want painkiller? I'm like, no, like, you don't want painkiller. I'm like, no, my body's teaching me a lesson that I did something very foolish. And so I need to learn from that lesson. So I just, you know, I just believe our bodies are, you know, something that we, we work through. And for me, you know, I got to the hospital, my, you know, my sister's a cardiologist and the doctor's like, dude, your, your feet are frozen. You're going to, you know, we're going to cut them off within a week. And, my sister, she's like, no, I've been talking to these, you know, these doctors up in Seattle and, you know, up in Alaska, and they're saying this is how we're going to keep your feet with the frostbite. And they just simply thought it was just too, you know, too far gone that my feet were were dead because when I got to, you know, the hospital, there was no blood flow. They were frozen solid. They had to thaw them out. You know, my my tissue started to to breed off of my foot, and finally, I end up losing, you know, the one toe and. You know, the doctor simply said, it's, it's a miracle. You only lost that. And he said, but because of the skin grafts, you may lose all the feeling in your feet. And that's what happened. And I came back and started to think I could wrestle again. And, you know, I was tripping and falling because I had lost all the sensitivity in my toes. And so balance being a wrestler is such a huge part of it and ended up uh, coming back and uh, training. And Jamil Byers, my training partner in Colorado Springs, he won the world. And so everybody... The first practice, like, dude, you're, he's a world champ. You can't even walk. You can't even stand up. You'll never beat him. And ultimately, eight months, I beat him, uh, you know, to make the, the world team in 2003. And then it's the same, uh, you know, thing that happened in the 2004 Olympics. I beat Tramil. And instead of being mad, he called me up and said, I'll help you in any way to, you know, make the Olympic team and now win another medal. Rowan, this is amazing in the sense that I, I can't even cover all this. You and I have already spent more time on this show, and I'm really grateful for every moment. This is an amazing conversation. But you and I have spent more time than any standard interview that I have on this show, and we haven't even covered. I mean, never mind that you probably could have and should have died as a result of that. You were also involved in a lightweight aircraft that crashed into Lake Powell. You were involved in a motorcycle accident. My question is, how do you explain that time and time again, you have been in some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable, things that would kill almost anybody else, and you keep emerging and coming out alive? How do you explain this? Well, I'd like to say that I'm just tough, but I think I'm just too stupid to die. 
that's probably what it comes wow. down to. Um, you know, I think, you know, honestly, growing up on the farm in Wyoming, you know, I ended up, uh, you know, every day was, was a near-death experience. You know, we would have scrapes and scratches, and, you know, we just get all these little injuries that happened. And my family never talked about safety. You know, my dad never said, hey, you know, there's a chance if you get on that tractor and you fall off that wheel well, there's a chance you could, you know, die. And so for us, we really, you know, didn't think a lot about safety. And so finally, I, I started looking at my life and my, my family kind of making fun of me because they're like, Ruin, you know, you worked so hard your whole life. Now you want to have fun. You've got to understand and control how much fun you have. And so, you know, the, the motor, the, the snowmobile accident, that was my mistake. And I put myself in that position and I deserved to go through what I did. The plane wreck, I was just a passenger in the aircraft of the owner and he is the one that made the mistake. And I remember I hearing that you had talked about me on the show the, the next few days afterwards. And I was like, man, if I ever get a chance, I, I want to choke that gym guy because you know, you're like, I don't want to be his friend, but if I'm ever stranded, he's the one guy I want to be with. And I heard about that and it just made me kind of realize, you know, that, that I need to make better decisions and hopefully better choices. Man, I'm so glad. You don't still want to choke me, do you? Well, maybe not. I think you're, you, overall, you know, you do too much good for the sporting world in America. Good. I'm glad to hear it, man. I'm glad that we can get right. It's If you stay in this game long enough, things ultimately come around. And like you said, like you said, we all make mistakes and we got to own our mistakes. This is an amazing life, Roland, that you have lived. It's all part of a documentary for those. And again, I couldn't even cover everything. I tried to, but what a great conversation. If listeners want to find the documentary, where do they go to get it? Well, it go, they go to the OlympicChannel.com backslash Ruling Gardener. So you want to go there. It is streaming right now on OlympicChannel.com. He is a distinguished member of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. He is a world champion. He is an Olympic gold medalist. There's a bronze medalist in there as well. A two-time Olympic medalist overall in Greco-Roman wrestling and the subject of that documentary, Ruin. It is so good to come together with you. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for doing that. And the documentary really is a tremendous watch. Thanks for doing that. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. I just think uh, the world of you and uh, appreciate it. But, you know, as Americans, I think the Olympics, you know, for me has a special place in my heart because I've been to 44 countries through, you know, the Olympics and through wrestling. And, you know, wrestling is one of those sports that brings our world together. They tried to cut the Olympics a few years ago from the Olympics. And, you know, we had Iranians, the Russians, everybody. You know, I've been to Cuba eight times. The Cubans got some of the best wrestlers in the world. There's just so many great athletes and wrestling and the Olympics brings us all together through sports. It's just been a pleasure to be able to represent myself and then ultimately America. You know, like I said in the documentary, the three most important letters in the world, you know, USA means the world to me. I think that's great, and I'm so glad you and I can come together. I think the world to you as well, Roland. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Once again, the documentary, Roland, is now streaming on OlympicChannel.com. Normally, and I did break the clock to do that, but it was well worth it. What an amazing story that is. And, and again, I could not tell the entire story. So my thanks to Roland Gardner. And I'm so glad the big man did not choke me out. We could have never had that conversation. I know it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or you're running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting on a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not there yet, you might feel a bit tempted to try to sneak across the tracks. Don't ever do it. To the naked eye, trains appear to be further away and moving slower than they actually are, and they can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Over one mile to 
stop. Think about that. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it's going to end in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. Paid for by NHTSA. Trainwreck Thursday was nothing of the sorts. Well, we're not done yet. There's always time for that train to derail. But if not today, then certainly tomorrow because Ritt is back where he is because Alvin is not in tomorrow. So there's always that possibility of something bad happening. And I know you all like a train wreck. I got your train wreck. Hey, Ritt, I need you to be responsible for the week that was tomorrow. Ritt's week that was. Can you handle that, old man? <laughs> Dear Ruins Toe, can you grab a Pepsi and pass it up to me? Thanks, signed Ted Williams' head. Body parts in the fridge having a conversation. I got to tell you, back in the day, man, back in the day, we used to talk about Ted Williams as Teddy Bomb Pop. Teddy Ball Game was Teddy Bomb Pop because of his stepson. I'm telling you, man, this show used to be so great. Different world, yo. Teddy Bomb Pop was a thing. All right, then let's go to the phones. <laughs> this kid is 16. He's on the Smack Off watch list. He's not in yet. I'm going to suggest that if he nails this and goes yard and gets racked, he may rip a golden ticket. Remember, there was a problem between he and the old man last Thursday. Ritt was on the board. Gavin in Illinois called in to take a run at the old man. This was last Thursday. This is how it sounded. Take old man Ritt, for instance. He doesn't have the capability to drive, but yet he still has a license somehow. <laughs> Ritt has zero awareness of what he's doing while he's chugging down the road, 1,500 the speed limit in his Oldsmobile. I was calling to accept your invitation to the Gavin V. Ritt Showdown. Game on. AKA... What's that? <laughs> that's just Ritt playing sound. All right, so that was last Gavin, Thursday. Just... I'm, I'm still applauding and I'm still laughing. That first little noise is me kind of snorting, like, because <clears throat> I was trying to stifle the laughter because 16-year-old Gavin's killing the old guy, and then the old guy starts firing sound drops in the middle of the call, and Gavin goes, huh, what's that? Great moment. He's back for more. Let's go to Illinois, Gavin. Gavin, what's up? Hey, Rome, how's it going? Good, dude. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. So I called last Thursday, and I wanted to address my call from last week as you were just talking about whether you're real. You actually clapped back at me pretty good while I was trying to blast you all the way back to your nursing home. Playing sound bites in my call was absolutely genius. I wouldn't have expected anyone to do that, let alone you, Rit. Bold move, old man. I have some respect for that. But that doesn't change the fact you still suck at your job. Maybe that laser beam of light reflecting off your big bald head is blinding you of the fact that the show is so much better when you're not on the controls. Anyway, Rome, I need to talk about something I saw on Twitter the other day. One of those boomers charging at me is good old Manny and Oxnard. I suggest you admit him back for a one-time only to hear what trash he has to spew. That dude is apparently ready, and I quote, have a crack at whipping that teenager live on air in the jungle. Let's hear it then, Manny. I advise staying in your cave on... Sorry, sorry, Rome. Messing up there because I'm a stupid 16-year-old. Ah! That's not a good call. No. 
Poor gal. Sixteen-year-old kid got his comeuppance. Gav, I like you, son. I would turn your phone off for a little while, and for a little while, I mean like a week or a month. Anyway, I I get kind of a kick out of the kid. Number one, I like it that you got a teenager who likes the show and likes to host and understands it and knows it. I like that. I like that. I mean, of course, as this show gets older, I want my audience to get younger if possible. I like that. And I get a real kick out of that kid coming in here and taking runs at old people like Rit and Manny. It's actually hilarious to me. It'd be even more hilarious if he were good at it. But he's trying. But then he melted down badly in the middle of that read and was unable to pull out of that nosedive. And the problem with that, Gavin, that went so badly, there really is no coming back from that. Like ever. For instance, if Roland Gardner says that I was in this horrific snowmobile accident and I suffered from frostbite and hypothermia, And I lost a toe as a result. And I kept that toe in my fridge as a reminder of what happens when you make bad choices. My man, they're going to cut your tongue off and you're going to have to keep that in the refrigerator forever. This is what happened when Gavin called up moments ago. Let's hear it then, Manny. I advise staying in your cave on... Sorry, sorry, Rome. Messing up there because I'm a stupid 16-year-old. Now you're a run 16-year-old. My man, I would say that you're the beneficiary of that happening at the very end of the program, but I'm pretty safe in assuming that will jump the day, especially with Rit back at the board tomorrow. (laughs) That's Rit laughing at you. Safe to assume my man is off of the watch list, is not going to get a golden ticket, and we had a train wreck of sorts at the very end of the program. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow. We're out. Good night, 